Father, I also pray for the Word this evening that uh, the study of Isaiah would be rich and would be challenging, that we would uh, give ourselves over to the text, which means, Father, that we would not only learn it, but that we would uh, seek to understand how we could turn it to good in our lives, we could put it to work and follow it in some new way. And, uh, Father, as always, we thank you for provisions to include the room tonight and the food afterward. You are so good to continually and faithfully provide, and we thank you for that. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how about a little review after so long of a break? Chapter 8 is before us, but for the sake of a minute or so, let's remember the organization of Isaiah. Let's start with that. You had five chapters that were introductory which means Isaiah himself, knowing in some sense where he was going, took time in each of those five chapters to throw a, a theme out at you and explore it just briefly, kind of set it up, knowing that he would return to it many times in the course of the book. Some of those themes included the, the sin of Israel, God's uh, displeasure with sin and the necessity of judgment, the idea that in the course of judgment there would be a remnant that ultimately this would lead to God restoring Israel in a glorious future. These were some of the themes that we saw in the early chapters. And then as the book proper began, chapter 6, we see Isaiah being commissioned in that chapter. We saw some of God's ultimate plan for Israel being unveiled, at least in parts, that he would hold them off from a knowledge in the short term, but restore them ultimately to a full knowledge down the road. All of these things we've studied. Then chapter 7 began a new segment. If chapter 1 opens the book proper, then chapter 8 or 7 and 8 and 9 all the way through chapter 12 begins a little segment within the book that we've named, scholars have named, Book of Emmanuel, which we know is the name for Jesus Christ. It means God is with us. And the name Emmanuel appears multiple times through these chapters, which is why the name has been attached to this section. What the section does, and I think this is an important way of under, beginning to understand the complexities of Isaiah overall. Isaiah is not a narrative in the traditional sense. It's not a story from front to back. Nor is it a kind of disconnected set of sayings or prose in, the, in, the, in that same way, not like Proverbs, for example. It's vignettes or small stories that all contribute to these major themes and what they do is reinforce these major ideas from the first five chapters over and over and over again. So, for example, from chapter 6 through chapter 12, the book of Emmanuel is going to teach us some history, reinforce the fact that Israel was sinful and needed judgment, reinforce the remnant, reinforce the coming kingdom. All these facts and, or these uh, themes will reemerge. But now there's a motif, uh, an underlying concept that is ever-present, but not spelled out so much as simply alluded to in the course of the writing. What was the motif of the book of Emmanuel? Children, but more specifically, the Christ child becomes the motif for these chapters. That's why we say it's the book of Emmanuel. Now, here's where the complexity, the beauty of Isaiah starts to show itself. Are chapters 6 through 12 a story of the Christ child? Not on their face. They're talking about things of, contemporary, of, of uh, Isaiah's day things that were contemporary to when he wrote it. You'll see some of that tonight. We saw some of that in chapter 7. But then in the midst of learning about the history of Israel, the coming invasion of Assyria, the, 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 the king that was ruling in the day and, his child, and Isaiah's child, for that matter, all these little facets of the mainline story, suddenly as we get through it, we step back at some moment and we realize, oh, wait a minute, 
they're also all picturing Jesus or leading us to conclusions about the coming Christ child. You realize there's a story below the story. The storyline and the motif start to change places over the course of these five chapters so that by the time you're at the end of the fifth chapter, the motif has taken front and center and the story of, of Israel and their present-day circumstances has faded into the background. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Then the Lord said to me, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters, Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Jeb. We stop there for a second. Here's how chapter 8 opens. God appears again to Isaiah in some form and says, Make a sign. But the word here for tablet or sign in the Hebrew, this indicates a large placard. Something you hang up for a visible effect. A big, big thing you'd hang out in front of your house or on a wall somewhere so it can be visible to everyone. Something that's meant to be seen, in other words. And on this placard, Isaiah is going to write in, as, God, as the text here says, ordinary letters, which means, you know, the point is so that anyone can read it in a simple way. You're going to write this common phrase. Now, you and I don't think of it as a common phrase, but in fact, it was a common phrase of war in Isaiah's day. Swift is the booty. Another way to say that, because that sounds awful strange, is speeding to the plunder. Yeah, swift is the booty sounds like something you say to dance. <laughs> it, speeding to the, the plunder. An invading army rapidly moving toward the place they're going to conquer where they can plunder it once they've conquered it. That's the term. That's what it means. The second half, speedy is the prey, is a complementary thought. It means hurrying to the spoil. So it's, like a, it's basically saying the same thing twice in a slightly different way. Running to the plunder, speeding to get the spoil, that kind of thing. But in its use in Isaiah's day, this is what soldiers would often shout to one another as a rally cry, a war cry, as they were literally running into battle. You might think of it as a bit of an incentive or encouragement for them to fight hard, right? Because you're talking about the reward. So as you enter into battle, the call was, think of what we're going to get when it's over. And let's rush into battle and get this over with because speedy to the, to the plunder is the thought. All right, so this is the big sign that, that Isaiah has been told to create. He's supposed to put this tablet or this big sign that's meant for public viewing somewhere in his area, on his home or on a wall, who knows where he put it, and he's supposed to write on it this phrase that everyone in that day would have known means an invading army. They would have associated it with an invading army. God then says there are going to be two men these are two literal men who lived in Isaiah's day who were going to stand as witnesses of Isaiah's writing, of what Isaiah is writing on this tablet. He names them Uriah and Zechariah. Now, this is not the Zechariah, uh, the prophet Zechariah. This is a man we know nothing about. So he lived in Isaiah's day, but he has no, we have no record of him otherwise. Uriah probably is a priest that you'll see in Second uh, Kings he was a priest in King Ahaz's day, the king that is in power um, in Isaiah's day. Not exactly a good guy. In fact, he was known for setting up some of the false uh, temple uh, altars, rather, that Ahaz would go around putting up in Israel. So it's not as though this man is being called a good guy. When it says in verse 2, faithful witness, that means reliable witness. Trustworthy witness, meaning he will have the opportunity to speak truthfully when the time comes 
that yes, Isaiah did write that and write that in advance of the events. So that when the invading army does show up, that Isaiah is alluding to, there will be two men at least who will be able to stand in their day, to, in, in Israel's day, in Judah's day, and say, yep, God said this was going to happen. I remember Isaiah wrote it. That's what God is saying. I'm going to have at least two witnesses. So what's God up to here? What's he doing with this placard and with these two witnesses? Well, I want you to consider first, God wants Isaiah to prepare this announcement as a public declaration of impending invasion. So we know God is intentionally giving a heads up to the people of what he plans to do. Then he implies that this coming war is a judgment against the people. Now, how is he doing that? How can we read now in verses 1 and 2 that what God is doing here is implying that this invading army is coming as a result of God's judgment against them. Well, do you remember Deuteronomy 17.6? You may not know the verse, but you may remember this. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. It's one of the laws given to Moses. It became a, very, a cornerstone for the Jewish justice system. It still exists today. And it's actually a principle of English common law in the sense that multiple witnesses always gives greater evidence for testimony or greater evidence for conviction than just one. So the law said if you're going to, have, if you're going to hold someone accountable for a capital crime, one that brings the death penalty, you cannot do that without at least two people who would confirm in their witness what was done. So God is saying, I am going to confirm in the witness of these two people that you are deserving of the judgment that I am bringing. And by the fact that he appoints two witnesses in advance, he's alluding to a coming judgment and a coming death penalty, at least for some in the nation of Israel. Sure enough, look what comes next in Isaiah, verse 3. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Mahar Shalal Hashvaz. Just keep that in mind if you have kids coming. For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. As Isaiah describes it here, he has a child through his wife, a woman he calls the prophetess. Uh, God tells him after that child is born to name the son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. What do you think the name means? It essentially means spoil speeds for a nation, in literal. But of course, it's a direct reference back to what's on that placard. In other words, it may not be exactly the same words, but it's essentially the same message. So, in a sense, I want you to hear this. The written word has now become word in the flesh. The written word to Israel concerning God's coming judgment has now become a word in the flesh from the point of view that this son now carries that same message in his very name. Here we begin to see the child motif emerging. Just a hint of it, but it continues to come with greater intensity as we move through this chapter. In the case of Isaiah's son here, before he can cry out, my father or my mother, what will happen to Damascus and Samaria is they will be conquered by Assyria. The Hebrew words, by the way, for father and mother are simple two-syllable um, words no different than us, papa, mama, right? What are the first words any child speaks, by and large? Those words. At that point, these two kingdoms are going to be ransacked. Now, remember some of the storyline of, of chapter 7? What's going on politically for the nation of Judah right now? Who are they worried about? They're worried about Israel and Syria. 
because Israel and Syria were worried about Assyria. So Syria and Israel have aligned against Assyria, but they know they need more help than that, so they come down and try to get Judah to be a part of their alliance. Judah has nothing of it. They try to attack. They get rebuffed. And God tells them, don't worry, I won't let them win. Remember that whole storyline? So in the midst of this moment, Isaiah's carrying a placard around saying, Assyria is going to come and do what they will with these two nations. That's what Damascus refers to. That's what Samaria refers to. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. See, we're not yet talking about Judah. But in this discussion about this coming army, God is going to take this take this a step further in a minute. But for now, he is simply pointing out that the coming Assyrian invasion would in fact defeat the alliance that has been created through Syria and Israel joining. That's the judgment upon the north for their sinful rejection of God and his covenant. Then God goes further. Verse 5. Again the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, and rejoiced in Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the, of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. All right. So, we see now the discussion here of what's been prophesied picking up. A little more detail. Look at some of the imagery, though. This is where Isaiah is so good at this. The people rejected, he says, the gentle waters that, he says, flow from Shiloh. Now, in Jerusalem now, we're talking about the city of Jerusalem, their main water supply was fed by this stream of Shiloh. In fact, it actually ended up in the pool of Siloam. That's where the water eventually collected. It was a very slow-moving, gentle-moving water, just by the nature of the stream. Uh, they were steady. They were reliable. It was a spring-fed stream. It wasn't going to change much from year to year or in season, out of season. It was this pool, then, that God is using to represent what? His quiet, steady, faithful provision to the city. And I think there's a, a subtext even beyond just the steadiness or the faithfulness. It's a stylistic contrast. God is always there. We just don't always recognize that He's there. God doesn't disappear because there's not a burning bush everywhere we go. You know, there's dramatic presentations of God's um, existence from time to time. What about in between? He's no less present. No less on the throne. No less at work. But from our point of view, perceptually, we tend to ignore or forget that He's there except when something dramatic happens. And then, in place of that, our tendency is to go after the dramatic, to seek the experience. We want to experience something, and we look for it, and if God's not providing it, and someone else is, we might, without thinking, run after it. In the day of Israel, what that meant was, they were more interested in the prospect of an Assyrian defense against their northern enemies. In other words, remember what they were planning to do? They could go south for Egypt, or they could go to Assyria and say, we don't want to join with Judah, we don't want to, I mean, with Israel and Syria, we want to join with you against them. That's exactly what the king tried to do. He tried to form an alliance with Assyria against Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Why do you do that? 
Remember what uh, Isaiah gave him as an option? Do nothing. Be quiet. Wait on God. He'll take care of this problem. That would be comparable to what? Gentle, flowing, steady waters as God provides. Or you can take what's behind curtain number two. You can go after Assyria. What they did instead of choosing God is they chose Assyria. Look what he says in the text. He said, you've rejected the flowing waters and you rejoiced in Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Rezin is the... Who was Rezin, do you remember? The king of Syria. And the son of Remaliah was the king of northern kingdom of Israel. How did they rejoice in those two? They rejoiced in them getting defeated by Assyria. They rejoiced in being a partner with Assyria. So they chose Assyria over God as their partner, as their defense. And they, they tried to do it so they could protect themselves. He says, but this coming flow of water from the Euphrates, the West is always associated with what in Scripture? The promised land. The East is always associated with what? The world or the enemy. Babylon in the East, Jerusalem in the West. Abraham was called from the East, sent to the West. Cain was rejected from the West, sent to the East. It's always an East-West motif in Scripture for the enemy in the world and Satan's home, play, you know, Satan's home base is Babylon in Mesopotamia. God's home base is Israel in their land in Jerusalem. So the east-west motif is throughout Scripture. It's showing up here again a little as well. The rivers of the Euphrates refers to what? Mesopotamia, which became part of the Assyrian Empire, obviously. But what he's saying is, you preferred the enemy. In, not just in political terms, but in spiritual terms. You chose the enemy over God. And those waters, he said, aren't going to be your friend. They look good at first, but what they're going to do is they're going to overrun their banks. In other words, your plan to align with Assyria and sort of contain the problem, it's not going to work. What's going to happen is this water you thought was your friend, figuratively speaking, will overflow its banks. It's going to go a lot further south than you hoped. It didn't just stop with Assyria, with Syria and northern kingdom of Israel. He says it's coming all the way to Judah, all the way up to your neck. That's another great picture. What's the head of Judah geographically? Jerusalem. Well, in historical terms, Assyria comes in and captures 46 cities total in the nation of Judah. Never takes Jerusalem. Never completely conquers Jerusalem. They get all the way up to the neck. And then they just kind of hold on for a little while. Strangling, if you will. But they never completely destroy the country because it was never God's intent that they could. But they, they do come in and perform a sort of judgment service as God directs. I love the reference to the bird. The wings kind of spreading out, covering the land. A saying comes to mind, you know, if you make your bed, you have to lie in it. That's what these people did by aligning themselves with Assyria. The Lord uses Isaiah here to tell Judah that Assyria is coming. They're coming swiftly. They're an arm of God's judgment. They're coming against both Israel and Judah. It will be to Israel's total end, but it will not completely remove Judah from Emmanuel's land. Isaiah refers to Judah here as the land of Judah as Emmanuel's land. Do you understand why he uses the term Emmanuel to describe the land? Do you wonder why he took Israel off the map but left Judah in place? Was Judah fundamentally a better group of people than the northern kingdom was? From what they did, in other words, from their actions, their behaviors? No, if you know the story, I mean, they may have had marginally more faithful kings from time to time, but as a people group, if anything, they're, they're called out in Isaiah for being just as blind and just as disobedient as any other group was. 
So then the question comes up, why does God use Assyria to judge the northern kingdom in a complete way, if you will, scattering them so that they never would come back into the land? But he spares Judah. He takes it only to the neck. And the answer is in the text I just read. It is to do with the name Emmanuel. Why must Judah not cease to exist? Because Christ isn't born yet. In other words, he's saying to these people, but what he's saying to them is, I'm not allowing you to leave the map yet. Not for your sake. Not because you deserve it. Not for any other reason except that for Emmanuel's sake, this is his land. For Emmanuel, this land will remain in your control so that the day of his arrival can be seen when it's appropriate. That's his allusion here when he says, for Emmanuel, you have to survive a little longer for his sake. God confirms this lesson in the next two verses. Look at verse 9. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. And give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, to really understand what these two verses mean, you actually go to a slightly different version of the Bible. Uh, in two, in fact, I want to read you from two versions that I would be sure most of you don't have or wouldn't have access to most of the time. One is the Septuagint. So I'm going back to the version of the Bible that was originally translated from Hebrew into Greek by Hebrews, by the, council of, uh, by the elders of Jerusalem. When they translated this from Hebrew to Greek, here's how they translated And then we now have, obviously, an English translation of the Greek. Here's what the Septuagint says. Verse 9, Know ye Gentiles, and be conquered. Hearten ye, even to the extremity of the earth. Be conquered, after ye strengthen yourselves. For even if you, sh- you should again strengthen yourselves you shall be conquered. And whoever's counsel you shall take, the Lord shall bring it to nothing. And whoever's word you shall speak, it shall not stand among you, for God is with us. Okay, hold that thought. And then you go to a translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest copy uh, uh, of the Old Testament that we have in Hebrew. Dated back to the Essenes, if you know the history of them. Anyway, Here's what the Dead Sea Scrolls says, translated into English from Hebrew. Band together nations, but be shattered. Listen, all distant countries. Gird yourselves, but be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will be brought to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel. When you put them all together, there's clearly, this is typical Isaiah, a top-level meaning and a sub-level meaning being given here. The top-level meaning is in the day to the people who read this, to Isaiah's people in his day. But the secondary level meaning is to everyone, including you and I today, concerning Emmanuel. The first thing he's stating here is the simple truth that any plan or any conspiracy by anybody, particularly by Gentiles, oh Gentile nations, anytime a Gentile nation is going to plan or conspire to bring down the house of David, God says here, that plan will be shattered. In simple terms, you try to bring them down, it's not going to work. Again, did that last indefinitely? No, we know historically that eventually happened. The the Romans, the Gentile Romans, did in fact conquer not only Judah, but Jerusalem and the temple. So it begs the question, well, how can he say this and then yet it did in fact happen? Well, because he puts a time limit to it or a purpose to it going forward. In other words, God is going to ensure that any Gentile attack will be shattered. Why? 
Well, remember the last phrase again. For Emmanuel. So that there is opportunity for Emmanuel to be birthed or to come into existence because of the promised child. But now here's the second meaning and the one that's much more profound, particularly for you and I today. God is by His purpose and plan, He's all about breaking down pride and the stubborn hearts of men and women, of disobedient people. He does it first here to the people of Israel. But the lesson doesn't end there. All the remote places of the earth, as he puts it, will know about this shattering and learn from it. And how do you learn from the shattering that God did to Israel? Well, we seek to strengthen ourselves by our own counsel, by our own work, by our own knowledge, or our own power. What did the nation of Judah do when they were facing the threats from the north? They had God, or they had the world, as their two options for defense. And as a lesson, God says, you chose them, not me. And any time you devise a plan, any time you try to do something in your own power, any time you think you're up to the task, I am all about shattering that. You almost get a sense here that his whole gleeful desire is to give opportunity to shatter those things, to show men the folly of trying to stand apart from God. It's ultimately a gracious act on his part that we might learn from that, right? But it is a statement to the world. Gird yourselves, meaning try to build yourselves up, but it's going to be shattered. That's God's purpose so that he can reveal himself to a, a repentant heart. In the place of human schemes and power, God will instead establish true power, true wisdom. How does God, in the ultimate sense, establish for men true power, true wisdom? How does he manifest that to us? Emmanuel. What is the ultimate display, the ultimate manifestation of God's wisdom and power in the life of Emmanuel and in the reign of Christ on earth? That is what he's getting to here at that subtext. He says, on the human level, you guys tried to fight your own fight. I'm not going to let it work. I'm going to shatter you. You get taken up to the neck. But only to the neck for Emmanuel. On the subtext, he's saying, people of the earth, try to stand in your own power. Try to do good works. Try to imagine your own victories and how to get there on your own. And I will show you the folly of that. Because or for God is with us. Because if he could permit, if it were possible, human intuition, human power and knowledge to stand in any meaningful way, it would be a competition with his son. It would seem to diminish the meaningfulness, the necessity of his son. Another simple way to say it is, if you could find another road to heaven, then Christ's death on the cross suddenly becomes a lot less important and meaningful. And that's why he says, I cannot allow those things to stand. I can't let the Tower of Babel reach any meaningful height and achieve any kind of earthly purpose, I must destroy it so that men understand the folly of trying to do it on their own. He's preaching, I guess you could say, the gospel. Just not in the terms we're usually familiar with. We must, as people, be brought low before we can be exalted. We must repent before we can be brought to the glory of faith and salvation. The power to bring low and the power to raise up are both God's alone through Christ. That's a subtle but unmistakable gospel message here. So that's one of those great examples, I think, of where Isaiah is so masterful at taking a statement that is designed at one level for the moment in this obvious story, this reasonably obvious historical story, but then as soon as you delve into it for a few seconds, you realize there's a whole other story here being embedded in the text. So let's go forward in the text. Now you have this invading army. They come across both the north and into Judah. 
where is Isaiah when this happens? This prophecy is going to take how long to come true? Before his son can say mama. He's definitely going to be alive, right? This happens in his lifetime, very shortly after he hears these words. That placard doesn't spend a whole lot of time up on the wall before it's coming true. That's why those two men that were called as witnesses will still be readily available to say, you're right, he did give us this warning. So where is Isaiah when this happens? He's in Jerusalem. That's his hometown. Look in verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Easy to say, hard to do. Because from the point of view of the population, Assyria was in many ways much like the Nazi Germans as they went into Poland or into France. They were this swift, seemingly unstoppable military force. Really, for the first time in history, a world power had reached the point where they could take control of other powers in a semi-global way and do it with impunity and do it quickly. This is really the first blitzkrieg of history was the one that Assyria perpetrated on, a, on the region that they occupied. Well, you put yourself in Judah's point of view, in Jerusalem, they'd made it all the way from where they started to your neck, so to speak. They're outside the walls of Jerusalem. What are the odds that they're going to just never make it into the city? If you're a betting person in the midst of all that, you're assuming it's only a matter of time. What kind of fear does that provoke? These people are not, by the way, a, a, a gracious and kind conquerors. It's a bad thing when they get through those walls. So, in the midst of that, you've got nowhere. You're trapped. You know what's coming. You think you know what's coming. What's the attitude, the atmosphere going to be like inside that city? And, I mean, it's unimaginable in some respects, right? But you can certainly consider what it must have been like. Isaiah is told specifically by God, in light of what he's just told Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah's got a burden here unlike anyone else in the city. He knew this was coming for a lot longer than they did. And he had to stay in the city because God's already giving him those instructions. When this happens, here's what you're going to do. So he's not permitted to escape. Where would he go anyway? He knows it's coming, and then he gets this additional burden. He says that the people are going to have these opinions as to what's happening, and you cannot share in their opinions, and you cannot voice what they voice. They're going to attribute their circumstances to a conspiracy. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Wouldn't we do that today? I mean, remember how they got here. Their king said... We need to align with Assyria, and if we align with Assyria, it's going to be to our advantage against our enemies in the north. We align with them. Everything seems to be going our way when Rezin falls and the son of Remaliah falls, and then all of a sudden they just keep coming. Next thing you know, we're in trouble. All right, this is a conspiracy. Obviously, somebody has been working a deal behind our backs. Remind you of anything of relatively recent times? Russia and Nazi Germany? You know, they had a deal there. They were going to be allies. Next thing you know, Germany's going into Russia, right? That's similar to the situation here. So he knows this is coming. He tells them they're going to call this a conspiracy. Now, why does God even care about what people are saying in the midst of this circumstance? Notice he says not to fear either. Don't fear. Don't dread it. Now, on the one hand, you'd think that's hard because obviously it's a scary situation. But honestly, if you're Isaiah, you know God set it up. You know he's purposed it. And yet you know he's not going to let the city fall because his intent is that, Isaiah, is that Emmanuel will come. So if you're Isaiah in the city, if you understand what God said, then you have no reason to fear. And that's exactly what God is uh, saying. Don't fear this. Don't call it a conspiracy. In other words, don't think and act like the people around you because you know better. 
He wants Himself, God Himself, to be the one that is feared and respected and even more so acknowledged to be the one responsible for what's happening. Verse 13, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. Then He shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. In other words, God is saying this event is for a certain purpose. That purpose is judgment and it is intended to come against some, you notice, not all, but some of the nation of Israel here, of the nation of Judah. Start at the top. God, he says, will be the one that you regard as holy, the one you should fear, not this enemy, which is a way of respectfully acknowledging who's in control. And then he says, for you, Isaiah, he will be a sanctuary. God will be a sanctuary. And similarly, he says, he shall become a sanctuary, but to the both the houses, he says, but not to some. The implication here is it's more than just Isaiah who's receiving a sanctuary. It's to a remnant. There is a small group for whom God will be a a sanctuary, but to these houses of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdoms, there will be judgment against them, as he explains. Did you notice the secondary meaning? Did any of these words sound familiar to you? I certainly think for some it did, right? Words like stumbling block, someone who, a snare. Where have you heard these words before? Anybody remember? Maybe Romans 9 is a good example. This is the second story again. If the first story, the one on the surface level, is a contemporary explanation from God to Isaiah about what to expect in this invasion and how to respond, okay, not so hard to follow, right? The secondary story that Isaiah is building here is now, again, who? Christ? Emmanuel? How is Emmanuel in this story? Well, the Messiah is the Holy One. He is the one to fear. He is the sanctuary to those who seek after Him in faith, is He not? He is the one who will, though, also become a snare and a trap to expose the Jewish people in His day. You see, Christ is perfectly represented there. He is, at the same time, He is one who becomes sanctuary to those who come to Him in faith, but to those who will reject Him, He becomes a stumbling block, a snare, and that's a specific thing for the Jewish nation. Go to Matthew 21.42, for example. This is Jesus' own words about Himself. Matthew 21.42. Jesus said to them, Do you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from God, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. He begins to allude to himself as a stone that you either are crushed by, meaning it breaks you down so that you repent and believe, or you stumble over it. You can't accept it. Romans 9.30 is the quintessential, the classic place you go to see Paul explain it this way. Paul talking about how it is that the Gentiles would receive the Lord and the Jews won't. He says in verse 30, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not obtained it. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, but as by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. 
So when you go back to Isaiah and you see Isaiah saying that there is this coming event in which if you believe, you wouldn't have no reason to fear. You look at me in respect rather than to the Assyrians and you would see sanctuary in me rather than anything to fear. But if you don't, I become a stumbling block, a snare. I'm the one bringing that destruction upon you for your lack of faith. The picture is being made complete, right? Okay, now, you're Isaiah. How do you react to that? In verse 16. This is Isaiah speaking in the first person. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Here again, I like how the Septuagint puts verse 16. It says, Then shall those who seal themselves that they may learn the law be made manifest. Now, if I ask you to take the word law and look at it more broadly than just what you're thinking probably, the Torah, the law of Moses, what if law was really a more general phrase meant to in indicate God's word? Because in their day, that's what it did mean. Often you'd hear it described as the law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. Sometimes just the law. Now, we know the law has a specific sense as well, but in many ways in Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, it's just a, way, a quick way of saying God's Word, the Scriptures, which in their day was little more than the Torah. Remember, this is being written in Isaiah's day. His book's not even written yet, right? Most of what comprised Old Testament Scripture is the law and nothing more, by and large. So, verse 16 could just as easily be read this way. Those that seal themselves that they may learn God's word be made manifest. So, another way, let me rephrase it one more time. Let the faithful remnant emerge in response to the Lord's revelation and trust in his word. And that remnant is going to be identifiable by their willingness to consult and follow God's word. So, if Isaiah is Isaiah in his day, he's heard what God's told him, he's thinking to himself, okay, this whole thing is going to happen and unfold in my life. I need to figure out who in this city understands this with me and will follow with me in these instructions so that we can get ourselves together, if not physically, at least relationally, we know who we are, and we will band together and we will study God's law and we will seal ourselves, meaning we will consecrate ourselves to this responsibility to be prayerfully ready for what God's about to do and to study his word and take his counsel and let the rest of the world go where it will go and, and receive the judgment that God's bringing. It's a kind of uh, setting himself up with some council of friends who know the Lord as well and prepare for this coming invasion. Then he says something very curious. He says, well, I will do this and then myself and my children will be as signs and wonders in this city. How is he and his children signs and wonders? Well, go back to the names. Isaiah. What does Isaiah mean? Salvation of Jehovah. What about Maher Shalalal Hashbaz? Spoil speeds for a nation. Let's use that one. Spoil speeds for a nation. Remember Shear Jashub from a couple chapters back? The lad. His name means what? A remnant will return. A remnant will return. Isaiah is saying that through his name and the names of his two sons, God's entire story for the plan of his, for his plan for Israel is being told. Look how it lines up. And in fact, you really want to see how this comes together. In the book of Emmanuel, we're in chapter 8. Chapter 9, chapter 10 and chapter 11, correspond to those three names and those three parts of the story. For example, look in chapter, if you want to page forward in your Bible, look at chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. 
The Arameans on the east and the Philistines on the west devoured Israel with gaping jaws. In spite of this, his anger does not turn away and his hand is still stretched out. That's just one verse, but it's indicative of what's all in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the Arameans on the east, the Philistines on the west, devouring Israel with gaping jaws. Maher shalalal hashbaz. This is the spoil speeds for a nation. This is the son that said you're going to see an army invade you. That's what chapter 9 details in more, uh, it gives you in more detail. Moving to chapter 10, look at chapter 10, verse 20. Now, in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That's obviously talking about Sheer Jashub. It's connected to, to his name. A remnant shall return. You notice even in that little segment there, they will never again rely on the one who struck them. We know that references Assyria in their day, but spiritually, where does that take you? Never again rely on the enemy and the world and what the world promises and, and all that goes with it. The one who struck us in the sense that the enemy was the one in the beginning who led the instigator for the fall, but instead rely on the Lord. Then in, verse, then in chapter 11, just look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 11, by the way, as you probably know, is a very famous chapter of Isaiah because it's really the culmination, the climax of the book of Emmanuel. The whole chapter reads like the first two verses, but just starting there, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is Isaiah in his name, salvation of Jehovah. So here's the story. You have the invasion, a remnant return, and then, of course, salvation appear in the form of Jesus Christ, in the form of Emmanuel. These are the three stages of what God is preparing to do before he can bring Emmanuel into the world on the appointed day in, in Jerusalem or in Judah. That is what uh, God is showing as a sign through the names of Isaiah and his children. So, Isaiah's family, they're living testimony for God's plan for Israel. And look what Isaiah says in his own words, in the verses I read already. He says, I will even look eagerly for him. Who is he talking about? Isaiah's going to wait looking for who? Emmanuel. This is the equivalent of a Jew or a believing Jew saying, I look eagerly for the day God sends the Messiah. That's what he's referencing here. It's fairly easy to understand what Isaiah is thinking. I know I am a believer. I know what it means that God is saving us through Emmanuel. I understand what he's telling me he's doing to this people, but I also see that he's prepared to spare those of us in the remnant. And I'm willing to name my kids these really strange names just to be clear that I understand what God's about to do. Verses 19 onward. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be... a enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Now, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this. I think it's pretty clear as it's finishing here. There's a contrast here between those who rely on God's word and those instead who rely on spiritists, it says, and mediums. Mediums and spiritists. You know contemporaneously what's going on in his day as this event unfolds and as the army gets closer those in power are frantically trying to figure out what to do. 
what do you think they turn to? This, there's such a contemporary aspect to this. Contemporary, I mean by our day today. When people get more and more desperate in their circumstances, they seek in more and more desperate ways for an answer. And it's usually in the same way, right? I mean, to be honest, most people don't walk into your neighborhood palm reader until things are pretty bad. I mean, some do habitually, but you know what I'm saying? Some people, that's, that's bottom of the barrel. I, you know, I don't have any more hope. I might as well try that. Maybe that will help. And things on TV and books that they pick up. I mean, in other words, the seeking for some solution it becomes more and more desperate as our circumstances become more and more desperate. And what's interesting about that is it's easy to sit here now, and, and particularly as Christians, and look at that behavior and look down on it, certainly, for good reason, but, but also distance ourselves from it a little in a way that doesn't reflect, in many cases, the reality of our own patterns. We are more likely doing some of that than we realize. We don't go to a palm reader, I'm assuming, most of the time. Certainly, I hope we don't. But we probably are more inclined to do smaller, smaller versions of the same and not really appreciate what, we're walking, what line we're walking on. For example, you ever read your horoscope? I'm not saying horoscope is absolute evil, but really when you get right down to it, if it has any value, where would you attribute the value to? Where did it get its power from if it had any to begin with? If you look at parlor games that involve mind reading or tricks of that nature, taking it out of the occult, if you look at some of the things we find advice in, in in the form of books or media of one type or another, television programs and the like, where do we seek knowledge? Even if it's not from an advice and consult sort of need, maybe it's just informational or entertainment. Where do we go to get that information? The, the point I'm making is it's a slippery slope. When you're in good times, those things are nothing more than innocent pastimes and pursuits. When you're on the rocks and life is desperate, you might be surprised how easily some otherwise good, well-meaning Christians slip into the, to resorting to some of those things because they don't seem to find answers anywhere else. Or that's their impression anyway. So, you know, maybe Dr. Phil knows more than my pastor does. He certainly seems to be a nice guy. There's that kind of rational, rationalization. And maybe that person down the street who tells me they can see the future might have something they can offer me. They seem convincing. So Isaiah says, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists, should not a people consult their God? To me, that is such a powerful statement that's so easily overlooked. When somebody tells me they have a desperate situation and they're looking for a source of information to help them or some guidance, you know, my first thought is, well, have you consulted Scripture on that? We have a problem with parents not being good parents, so we need to set up a parenting class. And we're going to get the latest best-selling book on how to raise your kids and teach that to our adults who need to learn how to be better parents. Have you gone to the Bible and shown them what the Bible has to say about being good parents first, if not entirely? I mean, in other words, is the wisdom of a secular book on how to be a good parent going to exceed, if equal even, the wisdom that God has presented in his word on that very same point? And until you've exhausted the wisdom of God in the book that he provided on that, that topic... Why seek a secondary source? Now, you could argue, well, the secondary source is biblically based. It draws lessons from the Bible. Okay, that's fine. I'm not saying the teaching can't be helpful. But if it's not rooted in the Word, you're kind of going to step B before you try to step A. That's his message in verse 19. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? 
Now, we don't take it to the extent, perhaps, of, of these kinds of sources, but just wanted you to be aware of the fact that it's a slippery slope. It's not a black and white line. It's not like everything short of a sorcerer is okay, or you know, it really moves away from God's word even to a degree. You're in trouble, or potentially in trouble. The true source of knowledge that the world seeks will always find its root, ultimately, in a demonic realm. Let me say that again. The source of knowledge that the world offers and seeks ultimately traces its roots to a demonic source. Meaning, even the well-meaning neighbor who offers personal advice, if they're not counseled themselves by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, they have only their own flesh to fall back on, which itself is a product of the enemy. You are of your father, the devil, until you know the Lord. Even if it's well-meaning advice, it is ultimately traceable to a spiritual source that is demonic. And I'm not saying they are indwelt. I'm saying that their source of knowledge can't be from God if they are not of God, spiritually speaking. So, it is always a black and white alternative. You are either seeking God's counsel or you're getting what the enemy has to offer, filtered through some cleverly crafted, angelic-like source, right? He comes as an angel of light. Isaiah says, we don't do that. Rather, he says, you turn to the law and the prophets. Here again, that's a, a phrase that means God's word. And if those we consult do not respond or offer insight from that source, then he says, they are not of the dawn. Does that sound familiar to something from, let's say, the New Testament, from the Gospels? Thinking of John chapter 1. Jesus came into the darkness but they did not receive him as the light, right? They preferred the darkness. This dark light motif is also evident in Scripture everywhere you go, right? You're either of darkness or of you're of light. He's, he's naming them for who they are. They are unbelievers. They are not of the light. And I don't know that this is a rule of thumb that we apply strictly so that you measure people by this. I'm not saying that's the intent here. But he's suggesting that if you go to a source for knowledge or wisdom on some issue and that source itself is not bringing to you the Word of God as their ultimate authority and their wisdom then they're not of God. Or at least for the sake of their knowledge, it's not of God. They're bringing you something you don't want. And in Isaiah's day, it meant they're not of the remnant. That's where it became important for Isaiah. Because in his day, it became a measurement stick of sorts for de delineating the remnant from those who were not of the remnant. While the city was busy running around with their head cut off, scared to death, consulting mediums and spirits, you knew the remnant because they were peacefully, quietly consulting God's word, perhaps scared still, but yet in a different frame of mind, to be sure, consulting a different source. They will respond, he says, by looking upward and cursing God. The ones who don't know him will respond upward, looking at God and cursing him for what comes upon them. They'll be in darkness, they'll be in anguish, they'll be in gloom, but those who know the Lord will not. In verse 1 it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What's he referring to there? He's just described this coming judgment and the gloom and the darkness. He almost leaves you hanging on that at the end of chapter 8, which is why I wanted to move one verse further. But there is a flip side to the story. He says, there will be no more gloom and anguish in that place, in Judah specifically, and in really the land of Israel generally. Then he gives this interesting little comment. He, meaning God, in earlier times, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. These are two tribes of the northern kingdom. So, on a simple sense, in a simple way, you know he's saying he treated that land with contempt when he let Assyria come in and destroy the people. 
But there's something significant about those two tribes, and more so, the land they were given. Remember the land of Israel was divided up by tribe by, uh, when Joshua came into the land? These two tribes were given the land directly around the Sea of Galilee. And in the case of this, the land of Zebulun, the chief city of that land was a city called Capernaum. And in the case of Naphtali, the chief city on that side of the Sea of Galilee was a little backwater town called Nazareth. And in these two places, you have the principal place, the principal area in which Jesus' ministry took place. All but for the time he walked down to Jerusalem, this is where he spent his time. And so while they're treated with contempt, he says, later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What's he referring to? Well, clearly he's referring to Emmanuel, to the coming Christ child who would actually use this territory as his home base for his miracles. Most of his miracles were performed in that area. Uh, next week, I still have high hopes, nine and maybe a little into ten. Um, I'd like to try to progress a little further. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for a time of uh, study. But, uh, Father, I also thank you that there is a, a patient and uh, consistent desire to be in your word from those who have gathered here tonight and, and those who listen afterward, Father. We, we acknowledge that many in this day and age would simply not sit for it. Um, they don't have the patience sometimes, Father, and I, I suspect as well, Father, their heart is simply looking elsewhere for wisdom. And we thank you, Father, that we uh, have been called to know you in this way and, and to understand you at this, in this kind of dedicated effort, not out of a prideful desire to be puffed up by knowledge, we pray, but rather, Father, because as we learn more about you, we are brought even lower in our appreciation for, for the sin of our life and for the the difference that there is between us and, and the holiness of God, and perhaps in that difference, Father, it would, it would humble us all the more to seek after you and to hear your voice and to obey it. We pray that would be the outcome. Thank you, Lord, for a time of fellowship, and then send us home in, in peace and in safety, and return us, if you will, next week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.